Una, dos, tres, vámonos. Red Cloaks Radio is a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Hi, this is Jesse Steigerwald with Red Cloaks Radio, joined today by my fabulous co-host. Martha Leticia from Boston Red Cloak. Today, we are so excited. Martha Leticia and I were singing earlier today a very popular theme song um, in anticipation of today's amazing guests. Martha Leticia, you want to hum a few bars with me? Bum, bum, bum. Working, Working nine, nine to five. five. What a way to earn a living. <laughs> Today, we are delighted to welcome Ellen Cassidy, not only a brilliant labor organizer, author, playwright, columnist, uh, speechwriter with President Clinton, um, so many amazing things. And today, here to celebrate her new book, Working Nine to Five. Hello, Ellen. Hello. So glad to be here. We've been just really excited thinking about the chance to talk to you about different chapters in your life stress on the word chapters there because we're excited about your event coming up at Harvard Bookstore on December 8th. Um, and I'm looking here on the screen at the cover of your new book. I've ordered mine and I downloaded the audio book so people can find that wherever books are sold and definitely check out Harvard Bookstore. Um, how does it feel seeing this book actually in real life in 3D? So exciting. You know, when I started writing the book, Working Nine to Five, what I wanted to do was write a, the kind of book that I was hungry for when I was starting out as an organizer 50 years ago at the age of 22. I was a clerk typist at Harvard University, and 10 of us got together, sat around in a circle, and talked about our jobs. And it wasn't long before our complaints about low pay and unequal pay and training men to be our supervisors, we moved forward to starting an organization called Nine to Five after the hours of the working day. And we started passing out a newsletter in downtown Boston, all over town, that talked about uh, what our dreams were and how we felt ourselves to be on the cusp of something really big, where there were 20 million office workers in America, and we were virtually invisible. When people thought about a worker, they, they pictured a man in a hard hat wielding a wrench. And so working women in the offices of Boston were kind of like the wallpaper, and nobody expected much of us. But we, by and by, started looking around and looking at each other and thinking, we feel united as women and we want rights and we want respect. We need to work. We are good at our jobs. We deserve respect. And it wasn't long before we were taking on some of the, the big bosses in Boston. Last summer, we got to watch the documentary, Nine to Five, The Story of a Movement, which was an incredible look at your organizing work with historic footage, actual images of you at work with other organizers. And that was an incredible gift already. The documentary is called Nine to Five, The Story of a Movement. And it's on Netflix. And it's a you know an hour and a half that really brings to life what office work used to be like and the changes that were made through our movement. Really recommended. I'm looking at the documentary footage. This is recent history. This is very recent where the consciousness of America around women and secretaries was deeply embedded. So. For women, perhaps they were told, you know, when you grow up, you can be a secretary. That's that's what you can do. And then looking at the footage, when we see what it actually looked like for clerical workers, it was very dehumanizing. 
Can you just paint us a little picture about, you know, these cubicles and the rows, the, the pools of women typing? Yeah, you know, when we got started, sexual harassment was perfectly legal. Pregnancy discrimination was legal. There were ads in the newspapers, help wanted male and help wanted female. And women would start out in these jobs. Sometimes for some women, a job in an office was felt like a step up and uh, their parents had worked in factories and they thought, wow, this is going to be really great. Then came the real shocker, the pay, which was less than for factory work. And then there were other women who had gone to college and expected professional jobs, got into these, uh, you know, entry level jobs in the finance industries in Boston, the publishing companies, the universities, and found themselves kind of stuck in what we called a pink collar ghetto. And there was really no way up. Women were really not recognized for the the skills that we had. You know, our feeling was that. Um, that office work was not just something to get out of. It was a respectable job. There's no such thing as a menial job. There's just menial pay. And uh, I think the, the um, nine to five movie of 1980 that came about inspired by our movement uh, after we've been organizing for seven or eight years, that movie really showed that the women in those office, in our offices, we knew how to run the office. We were, uh, office work was respectable and office workers needed to be respected too. And in that movie, the boss gets, you know, kidnapped and taken out of the, the action. And the women do a fantastic job of running the office better than he ever did. They start a childcare center. They start job sharing and flex time and um, job ladders and job posting and all these things that, uh, all that benefit all workers at a workplace. And that's the kind of thing we were asking for. Without the connection that you formed with other people with similar jobs, there were many women, as Dolly Parton is portraying in the movie, who were often alone with a man in a room and really subject to sexual harassment, physical harassment, violations of their personal body. There's there's an exhibit of Edward Hopper right now in New York, and there's a painting of a, a woman in a very form-fitting dress and then a man at a desk, and she clearly is representing a secretary doing filing, and there's such an ominous feeling in that scene and then, of course, in the movie. So this is a reality of danger in the workplace that we want to think we've addressed today. But if you had not organized and got together with other women sharing the kind of common circumstances that people were up against, we wouldn't have the same protections we have today legally to say that in the workplace, it's absolutely not appropriate. There is, there is no place for sexual harassment in the workplace. When we got started, there were uh, so many problems people brought in. And one way we got at that uh, in a collective way that you've been talking about is through our bad boss contests. We invited women to send in the most outrageous examples of things they've been asked to do on the job. And then we would show up on our lunch hour in a big posse with the, the TV cameras rolling at the office of the winning boss. And the first winner was a boss who had asked his secretary to sew up a hole in his pants while he was wearing them. Shortly after that, we heard about a, a boss who had fired his secretary for bringing him a corned beef sandwich on white bread instead of rye. We heard about a boss who uh, received a package in the mail and he turned it over and he looked sort of suspicious and he handed it to his secretary and said, you know, this could be a bomb, you open it. So 
this kind of thing really led to uh, women working together and a real change in the office culture, not only in Boston, but also across the country. In the documentary, one thing that comes out is how you organize people who didn't know each other. These are people maybe with a common employer, but also people across Boston who had a similar job, but totally different workplaces. We'll go right to the book next, because when I watched the documentary, what I thought was, I would like this in a handbook form, because this is like an amazing set of lessons for organizing, however you're organizing as an activist. So I'm curious about how your first strategies developed to bring women together who just had no other way of or reason to know each other. We handed out our newsletter all over town. And from there, people started writing back to us and giving their phone numbers. And we called them all up, every single one. And we started having lunches with people. Sometimes they ate three, three lunches a day. And uh, people would, first of all, they would come in, they would sit down in this little, some little cafeteria downtown. And the first words out of their mouth were, I am not a feminist. And that was okay with us. You know, they were for equal pay. They were for equal rights. They recognized that we were not being treated equally as women and they wanted to do something about it. And we didn't stand on ceremony. We didn't say, well, you've got to sign on this dotted line. We were open to people from all different points of view. And the next thing that, that struck us was that people were really scared and they were right to be. Um, when we handed out our newsletters outside these soaring skyscrapers in downtown Boston, there would be supervisors standing right inside the revolving doors, ready to snatch those newsletters right out of women's hands. So we had to think really hard to figure out ways that women could make their voices heard safely without losing their jobs. And one way we did that was by what you might call whistleblowers. So we created all these ways for people to let us know what was going on inside the offices of Boston without uh, giving their names and without their boss finding out. So we would hand out thousands of surveys that people would fill out. And then we'd get together and we'd put those survey results together in a, in a flyer form and stand outside that same bank and say, here's what people are saying it's like to work at this bank. And we won millions of dollars in back pay and raises just by things like that, just by voicing ourselves safely what people thought inside those companies. And uh, we it, that wasn't all there was to it. You know, we also started a union called Local 925 and we organized at uh, publishing companies and universities and city offices. And sometimes it really does take a union to get the boss to sit down and sign on the dotted line and guarantee those benefits and uh, pay raises that, that women deserve. Um, but we were able to do a huge amount just with embarrassment. You know, the big banks and insurance companies, they had the money. It just, they needed to be pushed. They needed to have that public pressure. And that's what we became sort of experts at, at uh, directing at them. You know, just building a, a giant coffee cup and locating it in City Hall Plaza that did a lot. We didn't have to give it, put a sign on it or anything. People knew exactly what we were talking about. So I wanted to know, why, how did you decide to write this book, this uh, Working 9 to 5? I was involved in starting this feisty, fantastic organization that started in Boston in 1972, 1973, with just 10 women sitting around sharing our stories. And fast forward a number of years, 
45 or so years came the election of President Trump. And on the day after his inauguration, the streets of Washington, D.C. filled with hundreds of thousands of women who were outraged and scared and ready to link arms and uh, win their rights as women. And I looked around at that crowd and I thought, these, are, these women are like the women of nine to five so many years ago. There are people who have been voiceless, ignored, and who are ready to, something is changing here. A sleeping giant is, is awakening. Um, and I thought, you know, the experiences that we had back then, 50 years ago, we were coming from a different place. We were using tactics that are different from what are going to be used today, but there's something in what we did that can really help people today. And I, I wanted to give the just the texture of what it felt like to be working in a really busy office for 12 hours a day and to be part of a team of thinking up all these creative, crazy things to do, like bringing uh, picket signs in the form of tennis rackets to the to the tennis tournament uh, because it was being sponsored by a bank that we were going after um, or the bad boss contests um, or the coffee cup in, in City Hall Plaza. And I wanted to bring that to life. You know, when we got started, um, we went around Boston and we, um, we talked to everybody we could think of who might have advice for us. And some people looked at us and, you know, we were 22, 23 years old and they said, you know, forget it kids we've tried this, it's not gonna work, you're not gonna get anywhere. But other people welcomed us with open arms and made us feel that they'd been waiting for us for all their lives. And it's not so much the advice that we got, although we listened very carefully to advice, but we knew we were going to have to forge our own path. And that's what I think people today, you know, read my book, read Working 9 to 5, and uh, I included tons of, of just very practical organizing tips in the book. But I also think you, you sort of absorb that information and then you put it together with what you're seeing around you. And one of the metaphors I use in the book is that an organizer has to be more like a sailboat sensing the wind than like a motorboat where you set your course and you just go there in a straight line. It's not like that. Um, so we burrowed our way forward. We fumbled, we stumbled, but um, we, we made a lot of change and I'm really proud of what we were able to do. And using your metaphor about the sailboat, how did you manage, because I assume you felt afraid or intimidated by those bosses. So how did you manage that? And will reading your book give us a tool on how to manage uh, the bosses? Because I, I think haven't changed that much. Bosses still ask you dumb things to do. That's a great question. Um, one thing to recognize is that early on, we had a meeting with a personnel director and we were terrified. And then we noticed that his hands were trembling. So that was very enlightening. Um, we scared these bosses and we, we made sure everybody realized that they were, they were pretty scared just the way we were scared. The day that we announced our campaign against this one big insurance company, an executive from the company decided that he'd better sleep in his office that night, just in case, in case, I don't know what, in case we invaded 
So we had these bosses on the run and uh, we sort of had this kind of, you know, when we banded together, we had a, a kind of um, spirit and sense of gleefulness maybe that really helped people get over their fears. And I, uh, I was a shy person. I had been afraid of making phone calls when I was a kid and even a teenager. I used to write out my, uh, you know, when I called the movie theater, find out what time is the movie, I would write down what time is the movie and then leave a space for the person to answer and then write, thank you. So uh, I had to really work hard to get over that. And I think understanding my own fears, having those fears helped me realize that other people were afraid and helped me figure out ways to help them. Um, so, you know, there were some people, I think a movement needs all kinds of people, bold people, shy people, loud people, quiet people. And the bold people would come in and it was fine with them to stand up at a podium and speak. But most people needed to practice over and over again. Uh, when it was time to introduce ourselves, people's hearts would start pounding. And I knew that because my heart was pounding. Um, so we created roles for people uh, that were that could bring them in at whatever level they were ready for. And then you could move up. So after you came and your first thing you did was bring cookies for the meeting, then the next time maybe you'd give a little report. And pretty soon people were standing up at the podium, addressing crowds of hundreds of people. And we really amazed ourselves by our own eloquence and our own bravery. You know, the book has uh, really positive feedback already. And again, for listeners, if you're listening before December 8th, 2022, then you can go and meet Ellen if you're in the Boston area at Harvard Bookstore on December 8th with lots of details on the Harvard Bookstore website. Um, it's a free event, but um, I just wanted to share one from Liz Schuler, who is the president of AFL-CIO. And what she said was in her latest work, Feminist Trailblazer, Ellen Cassidy takes us through her journey as a founder of the nine to five movement where 10 brave women came together to take a stand against sexism in the workplace. Their battles fought at the intersection of the women's movement and the labor movement are even more relevant today, making nine to five a must read for any activist or reader in search for a piece of inspiration. And I think for so many of us going through the last presidency and also the pandemic, many of us are feeling tired and worn down, but we know the answer is to keep going forward, building our networks and strategy. So Martha Letissi and I met you through the uh, feminist action team with a group of feminists across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, including different chapters of Indivisible, Boston Red Cloaks, and other feminist-centered organizations, trying to build a better network at the state level, because we know that lasting change takes organization. We're looking for strategies, just as Liz Schuler has said. What are some ways that you think people could integrate this book into their lives? Do you see this for student activists? Do you see this for people working in nonprofits, people in the political sphere? I think all of those, anybody who uh, is striving for a better work life or uh, better, better treatment on the job or just a just society, of any kind, I think what I wanted to convey was uh, just how you keep going and um, how sometimes you feel pretty desperate and pretty worn out and then how you pick yourself back up again and keep going and, and what keeps people um, working in the movement. 
And one thing I wanted to avoid was the idea that there's some types of people who are suited for this kind of work and other people are not. And, you know, probably the people who are suited are pretty rare. I don't think that's true. I think we all have something to give to our society and we can all get something out of linking arms with other people. Um, I also, I want to note that um, we expanded beyond Boston to into other cities and we targeted cities with a diverse workforce. Um, Boston at that time, the clerical workforce was almost entirely white, but we went looking for cities where that wasn't the case. And we found Baltimore and Atlanta and Milwaukee and Cleveland. And there we went about making sure that our organization reflected the diversity of the workforce. And that's something that didn't just happen uh, and something I'm really proud of. So, um, well, that's a good point, because I think centering Black women in particular, women of color, broadly speaking, is something that is still a challenge today. There are still many people of color who feel excluded by white-led organizations. And on the other hand, there are organizations that are purposely trying to build a diverse board racially, religiously, in terms of sexual identity. So when you were trying to um, expand and make sure you were really inclusive. What were some strategies that really helped? Well, one thing was uh, keeping our focus on the boss and on the boss's wrongdoing. Those bosses, they were doing things that were illegal. They were doing things that were unfair. They were, and you know, who benefits when women don't feel that they're, you know, like other people, they don't feel united with other workers? Uh, it's the boss. So who benefits from salary secrecy? It's the boss. Who benefits from all the fear in the office and from all the divisions? The boss. So we did everything we could to point out that uh, we women had common concerns. And if you believed in higher pay, equal pay, come join us. And we made sure, of course, to have um, a diverse group of organizers going out there and approaching people. And we always paired um, a woman of color and a, and a white woman in going into a workplace. Um, and from that, we, and, you know, being really conscious of, of recruiting people and getting people acting. You know, we didn't spend a lot of time sitting around deciding what our principles were, first of all, and who we were going to be organizing and so on. We sort of plunged in. And we made sure that at every single meeting, there was something we were, some action we were aiming at and some boss we were trying to take on and some outside force we were trying to change, some government agency we were trying to pressure. And uh, we didn't uh, center our attention on each other and what was the matter with each other and so on. We were out there to, to change the world and change the workforce and change the workplace. And we did that. Where can we get more information or learn more about your work? I really urge people to get a hold of my book, Working 9 to 5, which is available anywhere books are sold. And then you can also um, reach me through my website, ellencassidy.com. You have to spell Cassidy right. It's C-A-S-S-E-D-Y. Most people spell it with an I, but for me, Ellen Cassidy with an E, uh, dot com. Um, and then, of course, watch the documentary on Netflix, Nine to Five, The Story of a Movement. Um, that'll teach you a lot about what our movement was all about and, and what we won and what we're proud of. The event at Harvard Bookstore, it's December 8th at 7 p.m. It's a free event where you can actually get to meet Ellen, hear more than we were able to cover today. But Ellen, it's 
incredibly exciting to talk to you. I mean, we're looking right now in America at a potential rail strike. The unions are responding. This is a period where we have a blue team president, President Biden in office, and still figuring out how to negotiate between the balance of what union representatives are trying to do to secure better workplace conditions for everyone who's in the union, and then also balancing all of the people who rely on rails and need safe travel. This obviously organizing labor is a really big, giant challenge, but it's so exciting to spend time with you as someone who is at the forefront of really bringing women's voices into organized labor, which was not the case before you stepped up, definitely overcame some of that shyness, um, and we can't thank you enough for putting your energy, not just into the documentary, into your other books, which are very impressive, but for handing us over Working 9 to 5, the book. Thank you. Really great to talk with you, both of you. Thank you very much. And make sure to stay tuned for our reading Dobbs, which will be rolling out soon. You've been listening to Red Cloaks Radio, a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Find us at bostonredcloaks.com 